Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. This is Puvonituk. My village is barely 60 years old, but my land is old as time. That is Bobby Honoyuk, at 23 years old, narrating his first professional documentary film. There's a poetry of being. He loves his space. He understands the complexity of it. And he's willing to share that. My village in Nunavik is a kind of love letter. To the village, yes. But more specifically, to the land itself. It is part of us and we are part of it. With time, we learn to read it the same way you learn to read the writing in books. Over a winter, spring, and summer, Bobby kept returning home to tell a different kind of northern story. When you hear about us in the south, it is often through stories of disaster and human suffering. While this does exist, there is far more a kind of joy we take from being together. Just one north-south disconnect that still bewilders subsequent generations of indigenous filmmakers. I don't think people were used to necessarily seeing Indigenous communities existing in modern day with teenagers who listen to Justin Bieber and are on Instagram and still know how to throat sing and and hunt seal. If you're not seeing us as living in the modern time, it's hard to see us as people. This is the fourth and final episode in our series from Nunavik called Another Country. To follow Bobby Honoyuk's journey, we started in his village of Pavernitek. Perched on the edge of Hudson Bay, it is a collection of colorful wooden houses embedded in a sea of white. Bobby called this land simply another country. It's beyond frigid here. But Bobby is warmly remembered. He's my nephew. <laughs> He's of the Hinoyok clan, the oldest Hinoyok of the oldest of the three Hinoyok. And he was he was born here, raised here. Yes, I remember when he's he was born that 
actually uh, my second cousin. You know him? Yes, he was my childhood friend. What was he like? He was he was a open-minded guy, very very quiet, but open to people who wants to get close to him. And he was a very good hockey player too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good musician. Good musician, yeah. He played the accordion, guitar, yeah. He loved music. He played the button accordion, too. Wow. Hey, did he play that damn thing all night? Till seven in the morning. Amazing. He was a, a very good musician. Do you remember him as a young man? Very much so. What was he like? Uh, Bobby was a short man, but very quick on his feet. And he used to win the local marathon. So he's a good runner? Yes, he was one of the longer, long distance runners. He was a good writer too. He was a writer and a filmmaker as well. So much, so much to, to, to offer, and yet it was cut off too soon. Bobby was a child of Pravernatuk, of its harsh winters, of its wide open skies and of its independence streak. Aysara Hanoyok, the rebellious former mayor who refused to cede the land, was his blood uncle. And that double life people here told us about in our first episode is a life Bobby knew intimately. Through his gaze, we come to know Pavernatok as a place that's both modernizing and steeped in tradition. A place that knows joy, and yet a place whose people also find joy in leaving behind. To be honest, turning our backs on it comes easily, especially in the spring. The wild geese returning to the skies of Bhuvanituk beckon us to leave. Just knowing they are closer makes us antsy. Even though we no longer depend on it for survival, hunting, like fishing, is still part of our way of life. Bobby grew up with his uncle and learned to love hunting. Along the way, he also learned how to use a camera. That passion took him further afield than most, to Montreal, where he attended Collège Marie-Victorin, starting an uneasy relationship with a city that would shape his career and his life. 
Papinara. Tu l'écris comment P-O-P-B-Y. Et ton nom de famille K-N-U-A-G-U-A-K. Et comment tu le prononces Papinara. This is Bobby in a Radio-Canada interview in early 1999. The sound effects and the throat singing are from the original report. What do you not like in Montreal? The noise. It's mainly the noise. Are you sad? No, I'm not sad, but I just, I don't want the noise. I just, I just simply don't like noise. Isn't there noise at home? If I compare, one could say there is absolutely, almost no noise. There is just the snowmobile there. I like that. What do you like in the silence? It is a little bit like normal. I grew up with it. Maybe when you grow up with something, you like it forever. When you come here, do you feel foreign? I don't feel at home. And I want to stay there. But Bobby is increasingly at home in making moving images. Using footage he gathered himself in Pavernatuk, he made an hour-long film that has since been lost to history. But shown at a symposium on Inuit culture at his college in 1998, it gets noticed. He has a lot of talent, and what is interesting is that there is no distance between him and his camera and reality. He does not interpret. He knows how to wait. He films what he sees, and he shows us everything he sees with his eyes. He shows us extremely, extremely significant images in his film. That film became a springboard for Bobby's entry into the National Film Board, and a new program designed to help Indigenous participants to make their first professional film. Bobby won a competition to become the first Inuk to join the French section of the Programme Cinéiste Autochtone. Donc, Bobby Kenwachwak est à l'Office national du film du Canada depuis la fin du mois de février. Et ce que membre du jury me disait plus tôt cette semaine, c'est qu'on a beaucoup aimé sa fraîcheur. What a member of the jury told me this week is that we really liked its freshness. We really liked his ease with his guests, the way he showed the people of his village. Toi, t'as 21 ans. You're 21 years old. What scares you the most today, being young? I think that... I am not afraid. You're not afraid of anything? I have a lot of confidence. 
Because I have many dreams. What are these dreams? Talk to me about these dreams. The future of the Inuit. What we are going to do. We have many things that are not created yet, like TV studios, a cinema, live broadcasts like hockey. These are things that may never happen, but these are dreams. And when you dream, it might come true. Bobby was entering the world of film on the eve of the new millennium and at a time of profound change. Smaller video cameras had revolutionized filmmaking and made it more accessible. At the same time, a new wave of indigenous filmmakers were making their mark. Many of them started out at the NFB, which in this period was expanding its support of Indigenous filmmaking. And then Indigenous organizations started to get involved, like the Aboriginal People's Television Network and the Nunavut Film Development Corporation. So my name is Mark David Turner. Um, I regularly work for both Nunatsiavut government and the Ohalahatigit Society uh, as the manager of audiovisual archives and media literacy. And I'm also an adjunct professor of music at uh, Memorial University. And I consider myself to be an advocate for Inuit cinema. Mark has also produced a book specifically on Inuit cinema based on interviews with key Inuit filmmakers. I thought, well, I... I don't think that we need a sole-authored manuscript by a settler on this particular subject. I'm not certain that that's going to bring anything to the field. So really, it took the form of interviews, uh, which I thought was like critical, because again, it's Inuit voices out in front. Mark's book includes a first-of-its-kind filmography of 500 titles by and about Inuit, and a catalog of key moments in Inuit film history. He counts the formation of major Inuit production houses in the 1990s as among key developments that put Inuit filmmaking more firmly in the hands of Inuit. I think that it's really important that you do have these companies like Suma established in 1990. 1991, you have Arnate established, also in Aglulik. So um, it's, it's women's focused stories, which is fantastic. So I think that those two things alone sort of can't be understated. At the same time, you know, Nunavut itself is established as a separate territory, ferreted off from Northwest Territories in 1999. I think that there was a lot of energy and excitement that was sort of bound up in in that decade and in the run-up to that. And you see it, I think, pretty tangibly in terms of funding as well. Mm. So you will have... Uh, uh, National Film Board of Canada was, uh, they were like, certainly sponsoring uh, more Indigenous filmmaking. Uh, they were having in, Indigenous filmmaking competitions, but they were clearly seeking out, like, Inuit as part of that. Um, and you see a little bit more of an investment, I yeah. think, and like a more kind of like national concern in Inuit issues. And then accordingly, I think like that 
that kind of takes the form, you know, this might be chicken and egg, takes the form of creating more agency for Inuit in that filmmaking process. I think an, another big event, too, that we have is that at the establishment of Nunavut as a territory, you also have the establishment of the Nunavut Film Development Corporation as well. So it's a transitional time. Mm-hmm. And you see it in the films. I mean, you know, 1998, too, is when Asuma start to make uh, The Fast Runner. And they, they they make that over a period of two to three years. It's mm-hmm. officially released in 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, it kind of blows everything out of the water. I mean, no one's ever seen, like, anything quite like that. But that didn't come out of nowhere, and I think it came out of, like, this kind of period of maybe intense acceleration, funding bodies, like, certainly more interested in helping, like, indigenous stories generally, but certainly in Inuit stories around, like, the formation of none of it. It was around the same time that Bobby began developing the concept for his first film, casting him as part of that new movement of indigenous filmmakers. As subject matter he chose what he knew best, his home. I want to imagine with you that we are neither in Canada nor in Quebec. This is Bobby writing in an early version of a film proposal that gives a glimpse into his thinking. In it, he writes that he intends to call the work Pavernatok, Quebec, un autre pays, another country. It is to show that we Inuit, we are also people. But why were we put in Canada and Quebec? We never said we wanted to be in Canada and Quebec. Among the Inuit, nobody is saying, let's go do the same things as white people. We're going to follow their life and study their language. We are going to become like them. It seems like it's always automatic for the Inuit. As the film would be, the proposal itself is a snapshot of life in the North then. In effect, a historical document about a place that's mostly otherwise unknown in the South. The Inuit from Quebec's far north are currently in a difficult situation. They do not want to lose their entire culture, especially not their language, their food, their unique social life, etc. But they also want to move forward. Their modern life is increasingly about getting a job. Make money, get work hours, like a white person. Not about getting up early in the morning to go hunting for food. Inuit didn't used to stay in their villages. They were all separated. Now they're all together. What also becomes clear early on is that Bobby is motivated by a desire to change the narrative about his people to fill out the picture of Pivernatuk beyond what's known about it in the South. The wave of suicides there in the 90s that in one year claimed 16 young lives and then resurfaced in recent years. He wanted to get past that, past the water crises, the stereotypes, and the bitter cold. With this documentary, I want people of the South to get to know the Inuit. In general, Movies are made by white people from a white person's perspective. What is important for me is for this movie to be directed by an Inuk who has spent his entire life there. Through this movie, I want to try and convince a person from the South that a small village in the North 
is not sad and isolated, but that on the contrary, nature is magnificent and there are many activities to practice. Pavernatuk, it's another country. It's a remarkably focused film. And because, as I see it, and again, like as I interpret it, he stuck to his guns so much, and he stuck to his vision, and he stuck to this idea that it was going to be, um, you know, a vignette-based, like not a through narrative, but like an impressionistic vignette-based idea of what it is to be in a community. Mm-hmm. That I, I think, like the clarity of that vision and the age, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Early on, there are hints that getting there wasn't easy. This is an excerpt from a letter written by the producer supporting his application for the film. Since the beginning of Bobby's internship in Montreal, I must say that I feel that life for him far from his community is very difficult to bear. Despite this, he tenaciously responded to all my requests concerning the writing of a text to clarify his intentions as to the subjects he wants to address in this film. Those intentions clarified. The film got the go-ahead, with Bobby as director and sometime camera operator, working with a producer and a team. They visited Pavernatuk in spring, summer, and winter. Bobby becomes our guide, lending his voice in Inuktitut, French, and English to people who have long been stereotyped and misunderstood. <laughs> Whether it's the hunting tent, or the New Year's celebration, Bobby and his team take us to Pavernatok, and they allow us to linger. There are very few Inuit films that I've seen from anywhere that will give you a three-season view of one community. Uh, just the long durée of that film, the fact that it was shot over the amount of time that it was shot, uh, and to get a sense of the rhythms of the communities and sort of how people interact with each other in those different seasons, it's unparalleled. You're not going to find you're not going to find anything like that anywhere else. My first impression watching it was it reminded me of a film that was made by a good friend in Nunatsiavut named Sarah Abel, and she did a film about. Seal hunting is called a traditional seal hunt in Nunatsiavut. And the way that she shoots the activity, it's the shots are all a little tiny bit longer. There's a little bit more space after the dialogue ends. You can kind of inhabit a space a bit more. And that was the first thing that I thought when I saw this, when I saw Bobby's film. It was like, oh, I'm allowed into the rhythm of his space, into the rhythm of his community, and into sort of some of the dynamics. It's heightened by, I think, like a really re- like poetic like narration. Um, one of my favorite sequences in like his experience as a child, seeing all of these things brought in by the boat, and just how it, like how that's affected the dynamic of his community. As a child, I grew up in the shadow of these colorful displays, fascinated by the wealth of products filling its shelves. And like, there's such, to me, like poignancy in that. But he never. He never gives over that space, right? To say that this ruined things. It was just like this is part of things. And I think that that's the that's my main takeaway from watching his film is that there's a there's a poetry of being that there's a 
Uh, he, he loves his space. He understands the complexity of it. And he's willing to share that with people. On the water at last, motorboats have replaced our ancestors Umiak and Khayak. And frankly, no one minds. In spring, when it's time to leave for the hunt, Bobby is right along with them, recalling his own early days. Bobby's dispatches from Pavernatuk take us into the heart of the action and give us glimpses into the emotion. It is impossible to describe the feeling of freedom you get at sea. We are between sky and water, on our way to another world. Each of us searches the sky for birds, imagining a great hunt. Old Isaac is not afraid to say that he feels like a white man now that he lives in a wooden house. The life of our ancestors was a daily exploit. Like you, when I hear the elders' stories, they seem like tales from another century. I grew up in the comfort of wooden houses built by the government. They all fit the same mold. I have always wondered whether this was done to keep people from getting jealous. Today, no one will go back to the times of igloos, famine, and epidemics. The hospital is nearby, like the cooperative and the store, where you can buy anything if you have the money. In 1999, the film opens at the Présence Autochtone Festival in Montreal, where the audience laughed and cheered at all the right moments. On m'a dit toujours que je suis le premier inuit à faire le cinéma à l'ONF. I always get told I'm the first in to make movies at the NFB. C'est pas trop tôt, hein? C'est une première mondiale. Le film sort, je dirais, du laboratoire et donc... It's a world premiere. I'd say the film was just out of the lab, and so it's really exciting to be able to show it as part of this festival, because it is at one and the same time a work that I personally find very fresh and very, very happy about life in the North, which, of course, we don't know well. And it's the first work of a filmmaker, and we're very happy about it. It's a nice tip of the hat to that cinema, which we want to celebrate in our festival. However, Bobby's preferred subtitle, Another Country, had been dropped. The film is instead titled My Village in Nunavik. It was groundbreaking nevertheless. The clarity of vision coming into what it is that he was able to do at that age, working in that system. And it, to me, this is like, this is really what defines a pioneer is, like in this context, uh, is somebody who's able to stick to their vision, to tell the story that they want to tell. And I, I think to leave an impact on other people, that's it. I think that, I think that he was a pioneer in this context. Like, his work, at least I hope, you know, would make it easier for other generations of Inuit to come in and do this, you know, but it's yeah. hard to be like part of the early cohort. Absolutely. So yeah. 100% pioneer. Bobby's dispatch won recognition and awards abroad, but in Canada, it was kind of lost to history, virtually forgotten. You're listening to Ideas and to a documentary called Another Country, 
We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Our ancestors lived in isolation, without means of communication. Now, we are together and interconnected. You could say the year 2000 is dawning. My name is Babi Khinnoyak, I am 23 years old. I live just south of the 60th parallel. It was the late 1990s, and Bobby Hnoyak was a promising young filmmaker with an ambition to change the narrative about his people and his land. A quarter century after his first award-winning film, he is remembered as a pioneer whose tragic end confounds a hopeful beginning. The history of cinema about or by Inuit stretches back to the start of the 20th century, and even since Bobby's film... Inuit filmmakers have made huge strides. But many challenges remain. Challenges that filmmaker Nyla Anukshuk knows well. Good morning, Pagnatu. It's the longest day of the year, and what a beautiful one. This place is like a ghost town. For real lame. Welcome to Crap Hole. Population, who cares? Pang? What other crap hole are you living in? I think Pang is awesome. You guys! What is it? Nearly a quarter century after Bobby made his first documentary film, Nyla Anukshuk was directing her first feature film, Slashback, the first to be filmed in the community of Pangnartan on Baffin Island. It's a coming-of-age story of four teenage girls battling aliens. They came here to hunt us, but what they don't know is that we're the best hunters there is. Let's go hunting. What is it that you were hoping to achieve before you saw it embodied in these teenagers? Like, what was it that you had in mind of what you were trying to get, to get done? I think I was just trying to make something that was really fun, that could be a story that was empowering to young people from their community and make them feel proud of being Inuk and from the Arctic. And and then also for me, it was this lifelong dream of getting to direct a movie. My name is Nyla Inukshuk, and I'm a filmmaker living in Toronto. Nyla grew up in the North with a steady diet of classics like Tarantino and Spielberg, and she became especially interested in sci-fi and horror. Her first films were shorts with the National Film Board. My father grew up on the land. At the age of nine, he was taken from his parents and brought here to a glulik. 
Of course, I'm familiar with the residential school system here in Canada, but it never really felt real to me until I thought of him as a young boy being brought to this town, to this building that is now my hotel. It's strange to think that coming to Iglulik brought him away from his culture, and for me, it's bringing me back. But then she moved on to bigger commercial projects that culminated in Slashback. One of the things that was so great about that experience was getting to go back up to Nunavut and share the movie with communities. So to go back to the community of Pang where we shot it, and Pang is where my nephews are from, and they're six and eight years old now. And so it was just the idea of being able to to make a a movie like one of the ones that I watched growing up, but in their hometown. Uh, That seemed really kind of cool. And then then to be able to go back and see kids in town playing alien and and (laughs) they all like know the words to the to the movie and can can quote back lines and they'll be asking about the characters. And it's just they're engaging with it in such a in in the same way that I I did with the movies that I watched growing up. And I know how important those were to me. Having that chance to go back, it's it it really is so special. And when I can, I, I try and go with the cast, too, because it's, it's, I think, important yeah. for them to see. Uh, because, I mean, the, the kids in, in these communities, are, are they think it's cool to see me. But what they really want to see is those kids who are just like them and, you know, they're with the, um, and that had this opportunity to do kind of this fantastical thing. And then, you know, getting to fight aliens on screen. Uh, Every child. <laughs> absolute fantasy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, I think that that kind of, um, it's also important for the, for the young people that were involved mm-hmm. to kind of, to see the impact that they've had and because yeah. they worked really hard too. Nyla's film was well-received. A modern snapshot of what it's like for today's Inuit teens to grow up in the North. And yet, in many ways, still fighting the same stereotypes that Bobby was fighting back in the late 1990s. A lot of the things that he was saying are just things that, you know, myself uh, and my my friends, we have these conversations about our communities and the representation of our communities and that there's so much joy and love and, and community at the heart of it. And... When I see stories or films about Indigenous communities or the Arctic that are non-Indigenous, it it does, there is a bit of a disconnect and also a focus on the trauma, it seems. And so for him to say, you know, of course we've got, there's problems, there's, there's issues within our communities, but there's also so much laughter and joy. I really connected with that. It was so amazing to see how, similar life in the Arctic is today to to the way it was when he was making his film. And, you know, the people within, there was an elder within the documentary that was saying, you know, or I'm like basically a white man now. And it was, it's so interesting to kind of see that there is a very, this culture that is, is, um, I talk sometimes with my friend, uh, Bear, who's a DJ in Hallucination, an amazing Indigenous hip-hop uh, electronic music group, uh, he'll say sometimes, you know, our culture's li- it's alive, it's changing, it's it's breathing, and and so for us to expect that it stay the exact same, um, it just doesn't make sense. And and so it's it's so beautiful to see the the Arctic community at that time, and that to see that that the incorporation of of technology and modern Western life, but the main 
maintaining of of the con- connection to the land and hunting and the animals, that that's just going to be a part of life in the Arctic and uh, for the people that live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I wanted to actually read some of kind of what you mm-hmm. pointed to. You know, he said, my village is barely 60 years old, but my land is as old as time. When you hear about us in the South, it is often through stories of disaster and human suffering. While this does exist, there is far more a kind of joy we take from being together. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you, you've touched on it a little bit, but what is your sense of how well Canadians know that, even today? I, I mean, it is hard for me to know because I'm from from the Arctic. And so it's, but what I realized in making Slashback and the response to it was one thing that came up more than more than once was that people were asking me or surprised that I chose to tell such a modern story. And it was surprising to me to hear that because it never occurred to me to make an alien invasion period piece. But I just, I, I don't think people were used to necessarily seeing Indigenous communities existing in modern day with teenagers who listen to Justin Bieber and are on Instagram and still know how to throat sing and, and hunt yeah. seal. And it made me realize that that there was this just disconnect about where Inuit are. And in, if you're not seeing us as living in the modern time you're it's hard to see us as people like that with the same kinds of of needs as as you and your neighbors Nyla is already on her way to making her next feature film and that is despite all the challenges she's faced along the way like for me as as an indigenous woman i was trying to be the right kind of person for everybody and I think within even the Canadian media landscape, there was just this idea of what an Indigenous filmmaker was, what kind of movies we made, um, and even what we were capable of. Yeah. And so I was finding myself getting lots of mentorship opportunities, but no real jobs mm-hmm. and and getting offers to, to, to produce projects that were um, written by non-Indigenous people, but they needed an Indigenous person to attach the project in order to get it financed. And so it was just a lot of what I felt like was a capitalization of my Indigeneity in a way that was strange and confusing for me and also made me doubt my abilities in, in myself as, a, as an artist or a director. It took a life-threatening illness for Nyla to become more selective about the projects she takes on. It was only then that she decided to direct Slashback herself. It was this almost like a million lessons a day in the making of Slashback, because essentially I'd gone from uh, directing, you know, short NFB projects with very little money to a multi-million dollar movie with crew that this is what they do. Like they make movies and I, they, they work on sets all day. And I was the only one that had never been on a feature set until like my first feature set was my own. And the entire experience was actually such an amazing opportunity for growth for me. Um, just even as an indigenous woman, you're not always, used to having your word be heard. Uh, And then just with the way movies are made and the hierarchy of movies, for better or worse, the director is kind of at the top. And so when you say something, the people that are working with you, your collaborators, you know, they'll, they'll 
do what you say, and they'll take your word to 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 mean something. And just over a couple of months of of experiencing that, that was a that was just a great experience for me. The other thing about movies for me is it's a way for me to process how I just feel about the world. So for my second feature, it was written in during the pandemic in the summer of 2020 when it was such a crazy time for everyone. The Also with the death of George Floyd, there was just a shift in our how everyone was thinking about Huge race and shift. our conversations about, around race. And I was working with agents in LA and I was getting all these meetings with people who were really excited to support BIPOC voices. And they were, you know, these are people that maybe had never met an Indigenous person before. And and everyone was really nice, I should say. <laughs> was, uh, but, but, you know, you're, um, again, uh, this capitalization on the indigeneity was something that was tugging at me again. And who gets to benefit from the struggle of Indigenous people and what are the ethics of drawing from trauma for entertainment. And for me, who I work in horror, mm -hmm. and like I said, I like entertainment. I like entertaining movies. So that was something that I was just really struggling with that summer. And the process of writing this script about this character who she really doesn't have, she doesn't struggle with that at all. <laughs> she actually sees herself as this kind of voice for the Indigenous people and and it was really helpful for me to kind of figure out how I was feeling through this character and and through this script. And by the end, I almost felt like, oh, maybe I don't even need to make this movie because it's been so helpful just to kind of get it done. Just that process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and huh. and uh, then, you know, you share it with a couple of people and they like it. And so it's like it does feel a little self-indulgent because it is so personal. But then it, you know, the the interesting thing is it's it kind of is the more personal you are, the more people can kind of connect absolutely. and relate. Yeah. Um, and that's what I love about movies, too, is that they, uh, despite our differences, were able to kind of see each other in our stories. And, and growing up, I could see myself in Elliot and his his brother and 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 their friends as they're racing around on bikes in Southern California. And so, like, the same must be true in reverse. If, if we can be making exciting, fun stories or even, you know, just, uh, dramas and and comedies that that other people can see themselves in our stories, too. Bobby, too, had ambitions to tell more stories. I have a lot of confidence because I have many dreams. These are things that may never happen, but these are dreams. And when you dream, it might come true. After his success with his first major documentary, his next opportunity, in fact, to come back home to Pavernatuk to work for Nunavik's national broadcaster, TNI. Dave Stonier has long worked for TNI as a videographer, trainer, and producer. I went up to visit my sister one Christmas, and then I, someone who, when I stepped off the plane for the first time in my life, I said, I'm out of here. This is crazy. Because when I left LA, it was about 25 
Celsius. And when I arrived in Pavonitok, it was minus 38. But I just got involved with people, and it was, it was a very wonderful experience. In the early 90s, when Bobby was still a young teen, Dave once lived in Pavornitok and worked at a small TNI office there that provided local training. I met him much later. I was uh, working freelance doing camera for TNI, and Bobby and I were teamed up. I can't remember when was the first time, but we'd done several different shoots together. He was just this energetic guy that was interested in doing the work and doing a good job. And my experience was, you know, he was always there. He was always, like, showing up and was happy to be there. You could see that in the dozens of stories Bobby was involved in from Pavernatuk and other parts of the North, filling out the edges, adding to the rich Inuit tradition of storytelling. He got it. I mean, it's not everybody, right? Like, he he understood, like, the elements that were needed. He understood that, I mean, even just the basic creativity, to me, his work was solid, was dependable, and he understood the elements that were needed in order to put something together. And I think that with more opportunities, like, say, through T&I, with different kinds of programs to do that he would have had the opportunity to express more of their creativity. Could he have been much more if he'd had the chance? I think that he, he definitely had the, the energy and the creative capacity. In Bobby's work for TNI, he was behind the camera, either as director or camera, and sometimes both. But this time, he was working expressly for his people. His body of work included a film about the Junior Rangers program in Pavernatok, the community's response to the wave of suicides, especially significant since Bobby himself lost young loved ones to suicide. Here he is talking about it in 2002. How many of your friends have killed themselves? I have my best, great friend who I grew up with, who killed himself. There was my cousin who I grew up with. Her boyfriend shot her, then killed himself. Bobby Kanyuyak vit à Povornitouk, dans son film Mon village où nous naviguons. In his movie, My Village in Nunavik, he wanted to send a message of hope to young people, even though he has himself also flirted with death. Things were not really bad. There were others doing it, and I wanted to go with them. Today's Pavernatuk looks a lot like the one Bobby told us about on the eve of the millennium. The wooden houses and many of the same challenges remain. But now there's a bigger airport, a better co-op, a 24-7 Inuktitut television channel. And yet, there's no cell service. It is a place that's far from being frozen in time. 
The majority of the population is under 30, each with their own ambitions and dreams. But those dreams that Bobby said he had when he was starting out, he would never get to see them come true. Bobby worked at TNI for more than a decade, and then his career appears to end. It's been difficult to track exactly what he did during his 30s or where he was based. He enters a troubled period then. A period during which he pleads guilty to charges including assault and impaired driving and eventually robbery. We know Bobby maintained a connection to Montreal. He had family and friends in and around there. But the city where he had arrived with so much promise in his early 20s would play a much darker role in his later life. In July 2020, police had arrested him at a Montreal business for, quote, aggressive and disorganized behavior. By then, Bobby had been struggling with addiction and experiencing homelessness. He was put in a cell in a Montreal prison. Guards didn't check on him for 11 hours. When they finally did, Bobby was found dead on the prison floor. Inuk man Bobby Kanuajuak died in Bordeaux in 2020. According to the coroner's report into his death released last fall, Kanuajuak died of an irregular heartbeat brought on by alcohol withdrawal. The coroner's report says he received no medical assessment when he first arrived at Bordeaux and that he was left alone on the floor of his cell without anyone checking on him for 11 hours. The coroner said prison staff should have done more to protect Kanuajuak and that sending him to the infirmary when he first arrived might have saved his life. A family member spoke out then to say Bobby was much more than his struggles, that he wasn't a bad guy. We reached out several times to speak to family members, but heard nothing back. When I came upon Bobby's film, I set out to tell the story of an ambitious young man from Pavernatuk who used his art to fight the stereotypes. I didn't expect the litany of brushes with the law, and I was not expecting to find out he died out of neglect in a Montreal prison. In Pavernatuk, the place Bobby loved, they know of other stories of Inuit lost in the South, a place that still does not understand them. Bobby was one more example of how easily they can become lost in Canada's justice system. This this is the what I what I'm beginning to learn is the systemic racism. I heard it as a buzzword, but now I've seen it's evil acted out, even in my own family. This is Harry Tulagak again, an uncle. Papi. Papi Hanyorok, I'm. Uh, what, what 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 can we do? What what can what can be said except um, to publicize the fact that there's there's a neglect in the justice system, in the public, uh, in the jail system, and the, 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 the people don't like First Nations people. I mean, the police hate the natives. It's just a known fact. That's so wrong, because humans are human. Human beings are human beings. 
And for them to not see that, there's, there's something wrong with those people who don't see it that way. But I'm glad that he left something, Bobby did, that little documentary he did, and he enjoyed it. He enjoyed doing that. And that the, that's a part of the film where they're in the part, they're talking amongst themselves in that, that little campfire. It's, it's, it's amazing. And they're laughing and they're having fun. It is just that kind of joyful image Bobby wanted the world to see. Bobby's film is an artifact, a record of a moment in time. The year ends in joy. We are happy to begin the new year close together. But his Pavernatok lives on in real life. Some give thanks for heaven's blessings. Others rejoice in finally being together again after a long year spent in the South. It's always been with us. I think maybe this is the thing, is that now that we take the opportunity to sort of like celebrate the fact that it was made and celebrate the fact that it's always been with us and that it's a really important document and shine that light back on it. You've been listening to Ideas and to a documentary called Pavernatuk, Another Country. This episode was produced by me, Nala Ayed, and Pauline Holdsworth, with help from Nikola Lukšić. Many thanks to all of our guests. Special thanks to Mark David Turner and Harry Tulagak for all their help in making this episode possible. Thank you also to Sophie Saint-Pierre and André Dulis from the National Film Board, and to the staff at the Library and Archives Canada for their assistance. Thanks also to Kate Zeman at CBC Archives for her invaluable research. The documents relating to Bobby's film quoted in the episode are from the NFB Institutional Archives. Readings by Matthew Lazen Ryder, Greg Kelly, and Nahid Mustafa. Translations by Natalie de Meyer. The film excerpts you heard were from My Village in Nunavik, produced by the NFB. YouTube video by Daniel Putuku. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.